Um, I'm so excited to start this new series called Good Good Father, and um, the series is going to be looking at uh, God's fatherly attributes and how we relate to them uh, through the Beatitudes in the first part of the Sermon on the Mount, and I'm, I'm just thrilled. Um, I'm, I'm excited about what's happening. I'm excited about the men's retreat. I'm excited about young life. It's a very exciting morning. It's been great. It's been great, but let me, let me pray for us as we dig into God's Word this morning. Jesus, thank you so much for the opportunity we have to be here this morning uh, Lord, things go wrong on mornings like this morning, and things go right on mornings like this morning, and I am so thankful for who you've brought in, uh, in these doors and in this room, God. I, I know that it's the group that you want to speak to, uh, and, and Lord, I'll confess I'm nervous. I'm nervous that I won't say what you want me to say, so I, Lord, I beg you, remove me, get me out of the way so that these people can hear from you, our good, good Father. We love you, Jesus, and in your name, amen. You know, um, it was about, uh, I think my daughter was two, maybe three years old, the moment that I had one of those what have I done kind of moments as a father and as a dad. And I knew being a dad was difficult and I knew it, had, it was going to be filled with struggles and trials and, and all these kinds of things that people had told me every story imaginable when she was born and she's our first child. And, and I can remember um, taking her to the playground and, and, and letting her run around. She's just kind of hobbling around. She's not really active yet. Um, and, and we're on this nice, warm, sunny day playground. She's playing and, and I'm doing the dad thing. You know, I'm doing the dad thing. I'm looking at my phone, you know, not even paying attention to what this beautiful little angelic being is doing. And, and if you know her, she gets into things. She does. Even at 10, she gets into things. And I'm, I'm, I'm studying the finer points of uh, the 24-inch bar on the chainsaw that I was about to buy or something like that, right? Um, and, and I hear this voice, and you probably know where I'm going. I hear this voice, and the voice is, Daddy, help! And I look up, and this little angelic being that I swear could barely walk had climbed her way up to the monkey bars. And she's hanging on with both hands for dear life, and her britches are coming down. So she see that little cute belly, you know what I mean? And you see the diapers hanging there, and she's, she's hanging on with everything she's got, and she's realized that she's not going to make it. <laughs> I don't even know what she had planned. I don't want to know what she had planned. And so I throw down the phone, and I'm running across the, the, the playground, and even in those moments, my brain is going, you idiot. You call yourself a father, and your daughter's about to fall off the monkey bars and break something, you know, delicate, I don't know. And I'm running across, and I'm reaching out my arms, and, and she sees me. She's facing me. She lets go. I'm nowhere close. I'm like three feet away from her, and I'm like, literally jumping through the air, and I grab her right as we both fall to the ground, and I went, what have I done? I'm a father, and I can barely catch my daughter, you know? But the thing that dawned on me about that story is the fact that I was nowhere near her when she decided to let go. You see, my daughter has an understanding of her father, and it has nothing to do with the quality of fatherhood that I provide. It's her daddy. And I just had to be close. I just had to be close, and danger was over. And in my adult mind starts playing games, and I'm like, danger wasn't over. If I was six inches back further, she would have fallen, and it was a pretty big fall. It could have hurt her. She doesn't know that. She just knows daddy is close, and she lets go. An amazing picture of childlike faith. 
And that's where we're going this morning. We're going to talk about what it means to be a child. And if you want to know, kids are absolutely amazing. And I'm not one of those parents that like fell in love with his own kids and everybody else's kids are like hellions. You know what I mean? Like I know people like that. But, but kids in general are absolutely amazing. And if you want to know what a kid thinks, you just ask them. And they're going to tell you. They're going to tell you all about it. I asked um, a little girl a couple weeks ago if I could have a Skittle. I noticed that she had a bunch of sweaty Skittles in her palm of her hand. And I said, that looks delicious, right? So I was like, hey, can I have a Skittle? And she looked at the Skittles, and she looked at me, and she said, no. These are my Skittles, and I want all of them. And I went, that answer's better than a sweaty Skittle. That was amazing. Kids, if you want to see something fresh and unhindered in art, just ask a kid to draw you a picture. That's one of my favorite things my kids do. Hey, Daddy, can I draw you a picture? And I say, yeah, draw me a picture. And I don't have, like, room for all the pictures they draw me. So fresh, so new, so exciting. And I think that one of the reasons they're that way is that they don't know yet. And that's the sadness. They don't know yet. My wife said she saw a little boy skin her knee last week. And his, and his world was turned upside down. He's crying and he, he's in pain. He runs up to his mother and his mother gently pulls the, 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 the pant leg back and kisses his knee. And it's all better. Everything was fine. He went right back to playing. And you get this picture that kids' worlds can get turned upside down at the drop of a hat. But the beauty is, is they can get righted so easily. And we as adults, we know better. We're mature. We're wise, a little bit wiser, hopefully. And we know. And as we mature and grow, we become wise and we start to believe a horrible lie. And I've seen this lie start even to creep into my own children, and it breaks my heart. But this is the way sin works. The lie started with the serpent in the Garden of Eden, and it's rampant today. The, the lie is good, goodness originates inside of you. And all you have to do is be true to yourself. You have the answers. You have what it takes if you just dig deep enough. And somehow the solutions to our troubles, our problems can be found inside. Does that sound familiar? Eve is sitting there going, yeah, you know, God said we shouldn't eat of that fruit. And, and the serpent goes, but, but he told you if you eat of that, you will know good from evil. Doesn't that sound good? Isn't that a good thing to be able to, to tell without depending on him what good and evil is? You'll be able to kind of master your own destiny. You'll be self-reliant. And Eve went, well, yeah, and it really looks delicious. <laughs> I think I'm going to choose my way instead of his way. Just look deep inside you and you'll find the answers. I'll tell you what, if you look deep inside of me, the only thing you're going to get is a list of, the, of ways to screw stuff up royally. That's the thing that you're going to get inside of me. I've been, I've been keeping track. I've been taking notes. And the idea grows in us, and, and even though sometimes we have the best of intentions, we really start to believe that we possess the answer to all of life's problems. You know, Jesus saw this in his audiences, and in his disciples, and in the teachers of the law, and the experts, and everybody he interacted with, and he talked about it. And this is what's so beautiful about Jesus, the rabbi, is you can imagine him sitting down and just going, come here. Let me, let me explain to you what's really going on here. And he did that. He did that 
at the Sermon on the Mount. And I want to read to you this passage. We're going to read five, uh, Matthew chapter 5, 1 through 11. I'm sorry, 12. Had it wrong in my notes. We're going to read through 12, and then I'm going to come back and look at the first beatitude as it, as it impacts us. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down, you know, like you do. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, blessed is the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are the persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Very famous piece of scripture. It's quoted in many different plays. It's been books and, 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 and commentaries have been written on this subject. I just want to take a second and look at the context because it's important. It's simple, but it's profound. The crowds. So we know that Jesus is teaching the crowds. Well, who's in the crowd? Because I think that that is going to impact how we look at why he's saying what he's saying. Many different groups, and you see this in throughout the Gospels and the Gospel of Matthew, many different groups of people would be connected in the crowd. But experts, teachers, and rabbis were the spiritual elites. They probably weren't present in the crowd. And if they were present, Matthew wants us to know that's not the audience. There is, at times, that that's the audience, not here. Now, we can deduct that probably a mix of people are in the crowds, but they're, but they're dealing with the common man, with common problems in the first century. Another thing that's worth mentioning is the spiritual climate. So what were the people feeling spiritually when they, when they decided to go hear this new Jesus guy preach? What was going on in them? And many experts will tell you that the climate of even Jewish people of the time was frustration, anxiety, and exhaustion. The experts of the law at the time had become gatekeepers of the religion. They made laws, they enforced laws, and they were guilty of beating the people down. This used to be a right and a privilege and a calling and a duty, and it had turned into the most profitable career path one could take in the first century. And the point that many historians say is the people were actually groaning under spiritual oppression. And they were desperate for, for some refreshment. And John the Baptist shows up on the scene a little bit before Jesus, and the people go crazy over him. He was like a rock star. That he was out in the desert, and, and, and that's to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah, you know, one calling out in the desert. So he's out in the desert, and he's preaching, and thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people show up. In fact, if you look at the numbers, the numbers that show up for John the Baptist are scary on size. 
No one in recent history has ever attracted that many people. The distances these people had to travel, the sacrifices they had to make just to hear the great John the Baptist preach was legendary. And John the Baptist gets there and everybody's excited. Okay, John, what are you going to say? And he goes, hey guys, I'm here just to warm you up. I'm just here to warm the crowd up. I'm, the, I'm the, the opening act. The real act is coming. And by the way, I'm not even worthy of untying his shoes. He's so powerful and amazing. So you can tell that the energy in the room, people's expectations, that was so high, it was, they were off the charts. People could not wait to hear from this Jesus guy. People were ready for pretty much everything. You see the oppression that was happening spiritually, the oppression that was happening physically. Rome had conquered and was controlling the entire nation of Israel, and they're going, here it is. This is the guy. He's going to set us free. You want to go to war? Let's go. You want to overthrow Rome? Let's do it. Let's become the new world order. Can you imagine Israel rising to the top and controlling everything just like we've always dreamed? Are you ready? Here he is. He's going to tell us. What's he going to say? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And everybody goes, wait, what? I like brought my sword and everything. And and, and you're saying, I got the kingdom of heaven part right, but what did he say about who? The poor in spirit. The poor in spirit. Five Three, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And you can imagine people looking at each other going, wait, is this, is this the same dude that we, we thought? Because I feel like we were supposed to get pumped up, and he's talking about something that is so countercultural, I don't even quite grasp it. So, so let's just keep it simple, okay? Let's just keep it simple. The Greek word for poor used here, really, really at its core, if you really look at the context, means, are you ready? Poor. <laughs> means poor. Means poor. Any way you slice it, any way you cut it, means poor. It means poor. Poor, if you just look at it, it means without wealth. It means without means. It means without influence, without authority. And in most cases, poor means without value. Well, what's poor of spirit mean? Because he said poor of spirit. And again, you go back to the Greek. It's crazy. It means spirit. Poor in spirit. Poor in spirit. Take it for what it is. Without spiritual wealth, without spiritual means, without spiritual influence, without spiritual authority, and without spiritual value. Even if you want to debate about what poor in spirit really means, We can do that. We can go ahead. We can talk about that. But I think we could all agree that poor in spirit really means inadequacy. You're not wealthy in spirit. You're not confident in your spirit. You're you're without value in spirit. You're inadequate. And you go, well, wait a second, Josh. That's a big jump. Inadequacy, poor, I don't know. Does it really mean that? Just read through the Torah. First five books of the Old Testament. The Pentateuch. This is the law that the people were following. And there is nothing that makes you feel more inadequate than having to live your life through the lens of rules and regulations, especially ones that can't be followed perfectly. Here's the bar, everybody. Good luck trying to meet it. In fact, 
The law was built to not be met. And the reason I say that is because there is laws and restrictions and things you have to do when you fail. So it's like, okay, guys, live righteously, all right? And not, not if, <laughs> when you don't, this is what you do. This is how you make amends. It was built into it. You will constantly be reminded that you don't have what it takes. You were taught from a young age that you aren't enough. And it makes you feel inadequate. The first statement in our bulletin this morning is, the only response to inadequacy is emptiness. And there's a reason for that. And it's a good reason. It's a natural reason. It's normal. Every time you made a sacrifice, that sacrifice, if you did it right, was literally staring at you in the face, saying, I had to die because of your screw-up. Now just take a second and think about a religion that is built on that. Your best lamb, your best oxen, your best bull, look at it in the face as it dies, knowing this was your mess up. You can't get away from the feeling of inadequacy. And God did it on purpose. He did it for a reason, so that they would know, I can't do this. And this is why when Jesus introduces God being a good father, he does it later in the Sermon on the Mount. This is why the leaders go, whoa, 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 whoa. What are you saying? Their response was, Moses is our father. He's the one who gave us the way to be right. He gave us the law. The old covenant was designed to bring light to the fact that man was flawed and unable to right himself before God. But most Jews believed at the time that they were right before God because it was a covenant, because it was a law. And the law was don't mess up, and when you do, offer a sacrifice. It's work really hard and hope it was enough. And they had it down. And they had the system, and they had the pattern, and they had the rules. And, and they didn't just have rules. They had rules for their rules for their rules. They were the most cautious, most disciplined, most put-together group. But no matter what you do, the byproduct of a, of a, a law-based religious system is inadequacy and subsequently emptiness. And that was the point. This is why it's so shocking for Jesus to tell an audience that's ready to go to war for him that the poor in spirit are the ones that will be blessed. The poor in spirit were not those who viewed themselves rich in spirit. We can, we can agree on that. Poor in spirit were the ones that were empty, the ones who didn't have answers, the ones who didn't know. They had nothing to offer. They brought nothing to the spiritual table. Their only response, the only response to inadequacy is emptiness. And when you feel that emptiness, and if you've ever felt that before, you go for that promotion and it doesn't work. You get demoted for making a decision you thought was right. That feeling of inadequacy married with that feeling of emptiness, there's only two places to go. One, you shut down. You go, okay, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I won't do it again. I'm just going to follow the rules. I'm just going to stick with the, with, the, with the good path. I'm going to do everything right. 
and the other one is a lot more fun. The second response to that feeling of emptiness is to rise up and fill yourselves with what you think is right. Anything in order not to feel that emptiness. This is the age old, I don't need anyone to tell me what to do, I got this. I'm going to quit my job and start my own business and then I don't have to work for anybody, right? That's what that is. Wealth, power, popularity, approval. But at some point on that trajectory, you realize I do not have what it takes. And that's why the second statement in our bulletin is spiritual currency cannot be manufactured. God set this up on purpose. This is the way he formed the world. He built in us an absolute need for him. And at the garden, there was that point of, I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to do it my way. The whole point of the law was to reflect the weakness and the need for a savior. And the Jews took the fact that they had a covenant with God to mean that they were superior than everyone else. This is why it hurts so bad to be conquered over and over and over by other, by other groups. They were the special ones. But what they didn't understand is that they were flawed just like everybody else, just like you and me. We're sinful and we're flawed. And the Jews looked at the law as a way to manufacture their, cur- their, their, their current spiritual or their spiritual currency. On the outside, they were put together, they were disciplined, they were educated, they, they had it all together. And on the inside, it's the same old gnawing ache for a savior. The hope was that the Jewish tradition was righteousness, when in reality the Jewish tradition was hold a holding pattern for, for the coming Messiah, who is the only righteousness, and his name was Jesus. And the mind-blowing shift in perspective that Jesus brings up from the very get-go cannot be understated. This is what made people want to kill him. He he didn't come to abolish the law, he came to fulfill it. And it would almost have been easier if he had said, you know what, do away with the law, it's not a big deal. Because they would have gone, oh, he's crazy, let's just, let's just kill him now. But he didn't say that. I came to fulfill the law. You guys just misunderstood it. No matter who you are or how hard you work, you cannot manufacture spiritual currency. You can't do it. And this is why Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, not by works so that no man can boast. By grace, through faith, you have been saved, not by works. And the Jewish elite of the day were going, whoa, 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 works is all we got. That is the way. And you're telling me it doesn't matter, it's not important? So the father sent his son to tell us this. Listen, you can't do it on your own. The monkey bars are too high on purpose. And you're out there swinging in the wind. And what I want you to do is call out to me and say, Abba, Father, I need you. And I just have to be close. I don't even have to actually be touching you. Just let go. I got you. 
Jesus is saying over and over, God is not distant like your tradition tells you he is. He is near and he is good and he is better than you could have ever imagined with this system. He's a good father who cares for you. He's a father that's waiting for you with open arms. You cannot conjure or manufacture righteousness, but your father has given you a way to be righteous. And he walked among us. Faith in Christ is the only way to find spiritual value or or, or spiritual currency. Number three, the statement, fatherly love is the only source of spiritual wealth. And it's there. It's just sitting there, ready for you to claim it. Jesus is saying, if you're empty, if you have nothing to offer, then God wants you on his team. (laughs) The ones who bring nothing to the table, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You are like a little child who is trying so hard to figure it out without your father's help. It's never going to happen. You're always going to be swinging in the wind. And the world whispers in our ear as we're swinging in the wind, you don't need his help. You are the source. You have your own spiritual wealth. You do it. You work it. You make all the right decisions. You never mess up. If you work at it long enough, you'll figure it out. You are the source of your own spiritual wealth. And this leaks into our Christianity, doesn't it? It's all about what we know. It's all about if we can read Greek or not. It's all about how Bible studies work and, and how much of Daniel you can actually, you know, read and understand. And, and you got all these ideas and all these things, and, and those are well and good. And they can help you. But if you put them at the core of your spiritual currency, your spiritual worth, you are twisted in the wind. This is why Paul says this. Listen to this. Philippians 3, 8 through 9. I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage. That I, have ga- that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own. That comes from the law. But that which is through faith. In Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. That's it. That's the wealth. Not all this stuff. Paul was a zealot, violent, toting Pharisee. Had it all figured out. He'd done everything right. He came from the right family. He had the right education. He had the right background. He had the right passion and the right power. And he justified violence. That's how sure he was that he was right And then he turns around because of Jesus and he says that, I consider it all rubbish. The beautiful news that we get to take so much hope in is that nobodies in this situation get it all. They're the inheritors. In God's kingdom, the children-like people are the inheritors. Statement number four, being poor in the spirit is having nothing to offer. The message, this message, 
would have been a breath of fresh air for the common man. Maybe not the violent toting, let's overthrow Rome, but whoa, he's telling me I'm important? I thought the spiritual elite were important. This message was an an offensive insult to the elite because this is what they had put everything they had into. So, to co-own God's kingdom, you must be ready to let go of all your spiritual wealth or all your assumed spiritual wealth, your legacy, your pride, your answers, your information, your original languages, your commentaries, you name it. You got to let it all go and trust Jesus. Inheriting the kingdom happens when you have when you leave your manufactured spiritual wealth behind and run to the open arms of the Father. And if you don't have the answers in and of yourself, you are blessed because God has a plan for you and it includes you getting the keys to the kingdom. You see Jesus is paying the entrance fee that everybody thought they had to pay. Jesus is paying the entrance fee. Jesus is changing the bar of expectation. Jesus is inviting the commoner, the one with no training, the one without the vocab, the one with no perceived spiritual value. And you must understand that you have nothing to offer that God needs. And if you get that, if you understand that, you're blessed. You are his child and he adores you and wants to fill you up. God gives his kingdom to the spiritually poor. So the question is, is what do you bring to the spiritual table? (laughs) To co-own God's kingdom, less is more. So come to him in humility, ready to be led by Jesus. And let Jesus and only Jesus be your spiritual currency. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for um, the reality that we bring nothing of value to this equation. And Lord, we're so tempted to put our stock and to put our confidence and to put our understanding of this into our knowledge or our ability or our actions. But God, we know what that system is like, and we know it brings emptiness. So Lord, I ask that we would leave all this stuff at your feet. And we would admit that we are poor in spirit. Because we love you and we want to be blessed by you. So God, I ask that you would strike a chord in each one of our hearts, a chord of humility and of understanding that you are our good father who wants to train us up and to teach us. Let us not be tempted to think it all comes from within. But if we just try hard enough, we'll get it right. Jesus, thank you for being our spiritual currency. In your name, amen.